Welcome to Physics Twist, this week in science and technology, powered by Physics Education. Physics Twist is about the biggest, baddest and downright grooviest STEM stories from the past week and maybe a bit more. We are your hosts, Holly Kershaw and Duncan Bell, and this week we are joined by Danny, who's one of our educators here at Physics Education. Danny, tell us about your background and what you do here at Physics. Well, I started off with my science degree with engineering, and then I discovered that I love interacting with people. So I became a science communicator, and that's what my postgrad studies was in. Here at Physics, I actually help run workshops, classes, and also um, do a few bits and pieces of blogs. Nice one, Danny. All right, so we've asked you to bring in two different science and technology stories from the past week. Um, do you want to take that away for us in the inaugural episode? Well, since this is the inaugural episode, I thought I'll talk a bit about sound, because this is a podcast. A recent study has come out and it has shown that a link between movement and music, more specifically rhythm. The same regions of the brain are actually active when you listen to rhythmic music as when you are moving. Alright, do you know what region of the brain it is? Yes, the posterior parietal cortex. <laughs> posterior. Posterior parietal cortex. Yeah. yeah. So, Danny, can you tell us a little bit about the research they did that tells us about this rhythm happening in the posterior parietal cortex? Yeah, so the way they did this was actually really cool. They used magnetic resonance to actually shut down certain regions of the brain and whilst playing people music. And they were asked to either identify or keep up to beat or keep up with the rhythm of the music. And they found that once this particular region of the brain was shut off, people struggled to identify the actual rhythm as music itself. And this is actually really cool because they had a hypothesized this a few years back in the 80s when they realized that people suffering from Parkinson's disease actually struggled to, um, to interpret music. Now, what that means is they had to hypothesize that Parkinson's affect the regions of the motor neurons of the brain and that affects movement, but they hypothesized that that may also affect music and one's understanding of music. But this study actually locates the specific region of the brain and that is the region associated with movement. And what's it called again? Don't make me do this! <laughs> the posterior parietal cortex. Posterior. Posterior. Parietal. Parietal cortex, what did I say? Posterior parietal cortex. No, I did not. Yes, you did. I did not. You put an R in there. Posterior. Posterior. Posterior parietal cortex. Cool. So does this have any implications for the rest of us? Yes, actually, because one other study, which has been a follow-up of this study, actually shows that Listening to music at 100 and something, 120 beats, actually, whilst exercising, beats yes, beats per minute, whilst exercising, actually increases your workout. So if you're listening to rhythmic music whilst you work out, it actually helps perform better. Cool. Now, if you take this into the context of, say, training elite athletes, what they're actually using is music to actually depriving the athlete of music when they're training, and then giving them music when they're performing to actually increase their, say, 100% level. Hmm. It kind of makes sense though, don't you think? Like as someone who thinks they're decent at music, you can kind of feel feel the rhythm mm. and you can tap it out. I mean, that kind of makes sense to and me. You mentioned tapping and this is the exact reason why people bob their heads or tap their, tap their feet when listening to music. We mm. do it instinctually because the same regions of the brain light up under yeah, the MRI. Okay, cool. Danny, that is very, very cool. And I'm tapping my foot just thinking about all the rhythm that we've just talked about. Um, and maybe our listeners might try to tap their foot along to the next song they listen to um, to see if they can work out the rhythm. Yeah.
take it away? Yes. Great. What's up next, Holly? So, I don't know about you, but I've been watching a lot of the Winter Olympics. You know, I love watching... I have been forced to watch a lot of the Winter Olympics, yes. yes. So, I've been watching a lot of snowboarding, uh -huh. uh, a lot of moguls. What's moguls? Moguls is when they go down the hill and it's all, like, bumpy. Right. And it, I don't know how they have knees. Oh, it's the one where they bounce from side to side on skis? Yes. That one? Yeah, cool. Yes. So they bounce from side to side on skis. Um, and I also love watching the luge and the skeleton because I think you've got to be skeleton? pretty crazy. I love that they call it, it the skeleton. It's like, this is what's in your future if you do this sport. So skeleton is like going down the bobsled track head first on your stomach. Oh, okay. On this uh, like board not, with wheels on it. Not brave it's enough tiny. to try this. It's crazy. Yeah. Yep. You'll become a skeleton. Come on. So, I was reading about how even though it's been really, really, really cold in Pyeongchang um, for the Winter Olympics, most of the snow has been produced by snow machines. It's artificially it, made, yeah. Yeah, it's artificially made um, and because they just haven't had enough snowfall to build up the facilities for the events. Um, and then I found this article about how... They were talking about using silver iodide to make snow for the Olympics. Cool. Um, and how, you know, that they've been talking about using it for the Winter Olympics to make sure there is snow. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of pitched in this article as a revolutionary technology. But then I started doing some reading about it. As because, you, uh, you know, I'd heard of cloud seeding before. And this is when you put stuff into pre-existing clouds. So you fly a plane over it and you drop stuff into the clouds that causes ice crystals to form. So then it either snows or it rains. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty cool drought solution to me. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what scientists at the CSIRO were looking at in Australia in the 1950s. Awesome. So that's a major departure from how I imagine artificial snow is made, which is they just fire it out of those Cubbies. machines. And now they're literal like weather-making sorcerers. Yes. Crazy. So, I mean, at the moment, a lot of the snow for the Winter Olympics was just made by those snow cannon things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're looking at cloud seeding now. We actually use cloud seeding in Australia. Where? Um, the CSIRO use it over the Snowy Mountains. Now, the thing uh, about Snowy Mountains is Snowy Mountains has a giant hydroelectric system, which basically means we need water to make electricity now if we don't have water we can't make electricity and so in the 1950s they trialed some cloud seeding got some results and they were like well we don't really know if these results are actual weather changes mm. or whether we've had an impact yeah. but then after a really big drought throughout the 1990s they got permission to try again and started a trial in 2004. Of the cloud seeding itself? Or? Yes, of okay. cloud seeding in the same area that they did in the 1950s. Oh, neat. And this trial... So does that mean there was a huge gap of time mm. in between those, in, those that yep. initial trial and the... 50 the years. 50. But 50 years later, they got exactly the same results. Neat. So in 2013, they kicked off a proper cloud seeding program in the Snowy Mountains that helps provide more snow to the region during the winter months so that when that snow melts it runs off into the dams and those mm -hmm. dams can then produce electricity more power to you yep nice one <laughs> <laughs> good stuff <laughs> cool yep and so how does the silver iodide work exactly so you put this chemical called silver iodide into the sky and if you look at what silver iodide looks like as a molecule it actually looks a lot like ice 
and the theory of how this happens is that the water molecules are attracted to the silver iodide form the right shape to make ice and then fall as snow when there's enough ice in those clouds so that sounds fantastic and really cool again bad pun but this leads me to think along the lines of just because we can doesn't mean we necessarily should because messing with the weather like i said seems like a sort of do you remember from um uh, have you seen Fantasia with the with the wizard who's like <laughs> yes it reminds yeah. me of that going bam lightning bam rain that seems a bit over the top to me do you think that we should I'm not saying that that's going to be in reality but do you think that we should be doing that I Whether... think that we might reach a point where we have to mm -hmm. global warming means that we've got less snow on the ground in these snowy areas that are reliant on water yep and if we don't have snow and we don't have water uh, where are we going to drink from? What are we going to use to produce our electricity? As place. the world gets warmer and drier, this might be a solution that we have to look at. I did remember reading an article where there is an actual village that does something very similar. So what they do is because their town is actually so de depleted of water that they actually, during the winter, make artificial snow, similar methods, above their town at the hills and mountains. So during the summer, it melts and actually provides the town yeah. with water. Cool. But do we know what sort of um, long-term effects this use of silver iodide? And I think I remember seeing something about potassium iodide. No, potassium something other, something other that was also being used for, for cloud seeding. Do we do we know what sort of long-term effects the use of these chemicals might, the, might have? I suppose the the reality is that cloud seeding, even though we've known about it since the 1950s has not been used on a massive scale over a massive area of land anywhere in the mm. world. So there may still be environmental implications that we're not aware of. The silver iodide itself, uh, actually I'm gonna stop there because I don't know how toxic it is. Mm -hmm. um, You're agnostic. That's the best <laughs> pun I've ever made. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Oh, yeah. I don't see an immediate problem, but there may be a problem from the buildup of silver ions in the ground over time. Mm. Although my understanding is it involves a very small amount of silver for a much greater result. So the results I've been seeing in the Snowy Mountains is an increase of about 14 or 15% in precipitation after the clouds have been which seeded. Is, which is actually colossal, isn't it? It's huge. Yeah. yeah. It's like if you got 100 millimetres of rain, that then turns into 110 millimetres, which over, you know, 2,000 kilometres squared is a huge amount of rain. Yeah. Yep. I think I remember seeing earlier uh, when reading the study that previously they'd had results of up to about 5% increases, but then they thought this may not be actually due to the use of, of um, silver iodide, and mm -hmm. it may just be that's the weather pattern now. We can't say for sure, but I think, yeah. Looking at the, you'd have to look at the statistics of it, but 15% yeah. is a pretty massive. Well, the fact that the CSIRO achieved 14, 15% in both the 1950s and in the 2004 trial um, would suggest that there is some effect and it's not just the weather pattern. Mm. So I think in uh, the Olympics to come, we'll be seeing more and more of this kind of technology being used. Even, like, even though in Pyeongchang, is that what it's called? Pyeongchang, um, it's one of the coldest places. The, 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 the Winter Olympics have ever been been mm -hmm. held and yet still can't produce enough enough snow. Yeah, I remember uh, in the Sochi Games four years ago, they it was a heat wave and they had the snow melting. They, were, they couldn't produce the snow fast enough. Mm. 
So there's a, I think there's a lot of scope to have to revisit this idea of snow production because I think as a whole the world is getting less precipitation and less snow where they need it. Mm. And the fact that you can't move the Winter Olympics at the drop of a hat because it just didn't snow that year yeah. uh, means that we probably need some solutions if we want the Olympics to go ahead. But do we risk the environment for sporting events? Mm, tempting as it may be. Mm -hmm. Maybe one, one day we'll have the Autumn Olympics. Cool, all right, moving on. So one thing that I wanted to talk about um, uh, that happened in the past week was news that your boy, President Donald Trump, has um, basically indicated his intentions to privatize the International Space Station, or at least, at least the US government's um, intention to do so. Um, so this has drawn some criticism, especially from US, from US senators, um, because the uh, International Space Station is scheduled to remain in operation until 2028. Now, that may seem really, really far away, but I will remind you it is 2018 already, so it's not actually that far away. Um, but currently it's actually only funded until 2024, which is six years, years away. Um, so basically the US government wants to sell their stake uh, in the uh, space station. So originally when it was set up, it was set up as a sort of joint effort between the US, um, Japan, I think, was in there, Russia, obviously, Canada, perhaps. Um, and they also, they all own sort of a portion of it. Um, but the US basically saying now we want to sell ours, um, which, yeah, has been widely criticized by, the, by those senators. And the reason that they want to do this is because they're going to shift their... Um, shift their focus into other things, such as the moon, which we haven't been to in 40-some years, I believe, at this point. At least man hasn't. Um, and focus on Mars as well, so Mars colonization. It's really interesting. Um, do you think part of their motivation is that they think that private companies might be able to run it more efficiently? I mean, we've just seen SpaceX That's pretty much exactly it. the Falcon Heavy at a fraction of the cost of what the equivalent rockets cost the US in the 60s. Yes, exactly. And even compared to the Space Shuttle. So the Space Shuttle, I can't remember the, physics, uh, the figures exactly, but for every, I think it was pound that it um, takes, um, for every pound of material to get to space, it costs the... Cost the Space Shuttle about $53,000 to do it, and SpaceX costs something like fifty. Yeah. So it's just outrageous. So the, the comparison I saw was that the the Saturn V for a launch today would cost nearly a billion dollars, mm. whereas the launch of the Falcon Heavy last week, if you ignore the research and development costs, cost only $90 million. Yeah, which, which is, is a tenth of the cost of what the government program produced 50 years ago. Now, mm. some of that comes down to improvements in technology, but we're talking one tenth of the cost. Yeah. So these private enterprises have got their systems efficient because obviously they're in it to make profit and you can't make profit if you're inefficient. And you're but, throwing away um, billions of dollars potentially worth of rockets every single time that you, that you launch. It's a really good argument for capitalism, actually. <laughs> Cool. So one really interesting thing that I saw in the news this past week was that scientists have actually created a hybrid of humans and sheep recently. Um, something called that they like to call a chimera, and it's you're probably imagining something that's like the um, the body of a sheep with the head of a man or the body of a man with the head of a sheep, uh, which sounds absolutely horrible, but it's not exactly like that. So what's actually happening is that approximately one in every 
10,000 cells in these hybrids are human cells. So that means they're 99.99% sheep with a little bit of human in there. Um, so you're probably asking yourself, why have they done this? Are they mad scientists? Are they launching rockets? And are they creating these horrible hybrids to take over the earth? Not exactly. This has actually got really big um, important implications for the future of organ donation. So you might have heard about people who get really sick and let's say that they need a, um, they might need a lung transplant, a liver transplant, something along those lines. Um, when this happens, it's really difficult to implant a replacement organ because the body actually has a tendency to reject those organs because it's coming from outside. It's the body sees it as a foreign body effectively. It's kind of like when you get sick and you get the flu and your body, your body's immune system says, no, get out here. I don't, I don't want you in here. So it's a bit like that. So what's happening with these, um, with these uh, hybrid embryos is it actually allows for the growth of human organs inside of um, a different type of animal's body. Um, so <laughs> this is obviously, it sounds a bit weird, but the initial um, uh, indications are really good, really positive. Is this uh, like what we saw in the news when I was a kid, so maybe like 15 years ago, about growing ears on the back of mice? It is a bit like that, except that rather than using stem cells, which I believe that technique uses, this is kind of starting from uh, a, different, a different starting point. So they're kind of mixing in, as far as I can tell, they're mixing the DNA of humans and sheep. They've previously done this with pigs, I might add, um, with success as well, but I guess they're just trying different animals. Um, so not exactly the same, but with similar implications, I think the idea being that you can replace an organ or a body part with the body part that's grown from another animal. Now these, um, these animals will never be grown to be say viable. Um, that means they'll never, they'll never be alive in the way that we would normally think about something being alive. Um, but it does mean that the organ can be grown and harvested for use in organ transplants. So, sounds pretty creepy, sounds pretty weird, but it's a really, really important thing to do. There are huge sort of ethical considerations as well. So we have to think about, is it actually right to bring to life a creature solely for the purpose of harvesting organs from it? Because that, yeah, it's an ethical minefield, that one. Yeah, um, and I think we should probably also add there that these these sheep, they don't like walk around and talk or anything. They sort of are kept in like a, a coma type state for their entire life. So there's not really any consciousness involved. That's if they even get to that stage. And I don't think that they even, even get to there. It would be in a lab environment. Um, and we're talking about possibly even staying at the embryonic stage. Um, that's, that's the research that's been done up to this point. So yes, the embryos, um, these sort of chimera, hybrids are possible as embryos but whether they'll actually grow into a fully formed you know living being remains to be seen so we'll and, see that in the future and i would um i would i would expect that there would be some growth problems as well like look at dolly she only lived for like a few years and other cloning that we've done as humans has caused a lot of issues in terms of like the actual animal itself not living for long periods of time so it does require a lot more research until we actually make it viable mm, absolutely true there's there's so many things that could go wrong with this research so we'll just have to wait and see it's a very exciting time actually mm -hmm.
For those at home with younger siblings, so brothers and sisters, this is a cool experiment you can do. It's called the marshmallow experiment. What you do is get your brother or sister who's between the age of three and five into a room and put one marshmallow in front of them. Tell them that they have a choice. You need to go take care of something for mum. If they wait and do not eat the marshmallow, you will give them two when you return. Set up a camera, walk away, and watch what happens. Now, Duncan, I know that you are a psychology major, so please mm -hmm. tell us what they found and what the kids actually do. They found that the majority of kids would actually wait so that they got the, the larger and later reward, what in this study they call the LL, larger and later. Um, but it was really dependent on age. So if you're a young kid, you might think, I want that right now. Whereas the older kids would go, no, I can hang on a minute because twice as many marshmallows is twice as delicious. But the funny thing to watch, and this is why I suggest you do this at home, is that you see the kids struggling. Some kids whisper to the marshmallow, some kids salivate over it, some kids even start trying to fool the, the scientists by picking off pieces and eating it and making it look as if it is still Is that warm. right? Marshmallow. Yeah. Oh, it, I didn't know that. If you look at the video, it's very funny to watch, at, watch and you will find some on YouTube. That's amazing. Now, what does this study and what was, what was the implications of this study? So what they found is that with the original marshmallow test, I think it was done in the 1980s or 1970s, they actually followed up with a lot of those kids that they had included in that test and then compared whether the kids were able to wait for a marshmallow to the future success in life. And it showed that there was a correlation between that be able, being able to delay you know, the reward as a child to success in life, which kind of means that they could use it to predict certain personality traits that would lead to someone being successful at school or at work or just in life in general. And I thought that was pretty cool. That is really cool. But what makes this even cooler is that they've just done the same study with chimpanzees and they found the same result. Chimpanzees who were able to wait for more food had better G factor or general intelligence. So how do you tell a chimp to wait there for 15 minutes yes. and I'll give you twice as much? This is the hard part. <laughs> and what they eventually trained the animals to do is actually if they waited for more food, they would get more food. However, it was up to the animal when they thought or when they acted in terms of grabbing the food or when they decided that they waited long enough. So the longer the animal waited, the more food they got, essentially. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, this is actually very interesting because what this means is that evolution has designed us to actually wait because this trait isn't just human anymore, but also goes down to primate, which means that for some reason, it is beneficial for us to, in terms of survival, to be patient. Well, maybe, I mean, I can see how that would have be good for, you know, your hunter-gatherer early humans. Because if you were out collecting food for your family and you couldn't wait, then only you ate and not your family. So being able to, you know, get all those berries and store them in whatever you were carrying them in for a day could mean that, you know, your family or your whole village survives. Absolutely makes sense. And we know for a fact that, the, that animals like birds will stock up on food 
to give to their young. And even the fox itself, the fox actually captures some kills and stores it later for the winter to oh, feed brilliant. their family. Oh, fantastic. So this it... trait may actually go across other animals, but that has not been tested right. properly yet. <laughs> so it's an evolutionary um, basis for exerting willpower. Yes, and it, supposedly the more willpower you have, the more general intelligence you have. Um, so actually Danny talking about evolution has just reminded me of another story that I was listening to. I was listening to another great podcast uh, called Radio Lab. I love Radio and Lab. They were talking about adaptations in plants because people who do building inspections quite often notice that the plant roots always wrap around water pipes. And that causes huge problems because these plant roots suffocate the water pipes and crack them and break them and then they need to be replaced. So there was a scientist actually from Australia who started doing a series of experiments where she created a pot that was like an upside down Y and it had a water pipe on one side and nothing on the other side. And every time the plant roots grew towards the water. Oh, okay. So it's almost like there's this sensing ability in the plants to sense out water. Now- But how does it sense it? That's well, the question. That's the big question. But this same scientist has then done a series of follow-up experiments mm -hmm. where she's also learnt that she can train plants to look for a reward. Train them to go in a particular direction or always to water? How does that work? Yeah, so she wanted to look to see if this effect was exclusive to water. Now, she's not sure why water attracts them. And it could be a vibration. It could be a moisture. The That's... sound of running water as yeah, well. Yeah, although the water in these things was still. So uh -huh. we're not quite sure. However, she did have another version of the experiment where she had two MP3 players. One played nothing. One played the sound, sound of water. water. And the roots, the, the roots grew towards <laughs> there. Um, but my favorite was when she was sort of seeing if plants could be trained to grow a certain way, even if it wasn't towards normal food. So right. what she did was she first trained the plants to grow towards a blue light because obviously plants use light to, you know, make their food. But what she did was she then tried an experiment where she got the fan out of a computer and she would turn the fan on the computer on at the same time as the light and spent about three weeks training the plants to grow towards the light with the fan. Amazing. Now, once she took away the light, those plants had still learned to grow towards the fan, even though what? it wasn't letting them like produce food. That's amazing. That's weird because we don't think of plants as being conscious. And that, that, yeah. is, that is the big question. It's how are the plants doing this? What's causing the plants to grow in those directions? What's allowing them to learn? This podcast of Radio Lab, which you should look up, it's called Smarty Plants. Um, it just had this number of experiments that scientists had done about dropping plants, trying to grow it in different ways. And in a whole lot of circumstances, she showed that these plants could learn. Fantastic. I imagine it would probably be through a touch sense somehow. Because if you think about um, yeah, those, about, yeah. yeah, if you think about what are the ones called where they grab onto a, an insect, for example? Like your carnivorous Venus plants. Fly carnivorous plants. Your Venus flytrap. Fly that's a sensing, that's a touch sensing mm -hmm. um, mechanism. And you know those little plants where you touch them and they retreat back, they well, curl up? Actually, so one of the experiments she did was to get one of those plants that when you drop it, it 
folds up. Mm -hmm. And she found that, you know, she tested to drop it and mm -hmm. it folded up. And then she started attaching to a parachute so it didn't drop as suddenly. And after about 60 drops, the plant learnt not to close up. What a bizarre but, experiment. But if she shook it, it still then closed it up. Oh my god. I don't know if so, you can breed traits in the plants then. So if you get plants that don't close up, you can breed them together and with their offspring not close up. Yeah, it's it's really, really interesting. And I think like, these studies are still in their early days. But super interesting. I never really thought that I'd be so interested in plants. But here we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, right. Yeah, plants are awesome. That's fantastic. Stay tuned. Maybe there's uh, maybe some updates we'll be giving in the future. That's a wrap on Physics Twist for this week. Thank you for joining us and thank you to Danny for sharing your passion. Don't forget you can meet the wonderful people of physics at your school, vacation care centre, birthday party, um, and just check out our website at physicseducation.com.au. Now, we can't spell, and that's F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S education.com.au. Also, if you like this, you can rate us on iTunes. It really helps us out. Uh, on an unrelated note, my personal favourite number is five. We'll be back next week to Wax Scientific with our colleague Quill. In the meantime, if you'd like to hear some thought-provoking discussions with leading education providers and other hot content, you can check out the Physics Ed podcast run by the always absorbing Ben Newsom. He smells like petrichor. Catch you next week. Posterior parterial cortex. <laughs> but tap. Posterior parterial cortex. You're never going to get it. <laughs>